Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by Felix & Son Home Improvement Services, serving the residents of Niceland since 1982. If you've got a problem, we can fix it. And welcome back, everybody, to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, episode 22. It's hard to believe it's been that many of A Lawyer's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk as in the Captain of the Enterprise. So, Kirk, Infinity War. Did you see it yet? No. Yeah, my uh, my son my son texted me on my way into work this morning, and it was just an all-capital letters text that said, I saw Infinity War. Uh, and followed up by it was insane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, which I think we probably could have uh, guessed. Yeah, I mean, it, it's yeah. You know, I, I think the, the one prediction is that Infinity War is probably going to be an amazing movie. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, I so uh, do you have any other predictions? I mean, I've got one. I have in our notes here. Uh, so, Captain, you know, Captain Marvel yep. movies coming out with Brie Larson. Uh, I was looking at the release schedule, and that's coming out. I think next spring, like February, March, uh, sometime around in there. Okay. And then there's I, what I assume is a, a follow up to this Infinity War, a yep. second Infinity War movie coming out shortly after that. So my 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 hunch is that they're going to do a Black Panther type thing where they release the highly anticipated, very unusual comic book movie introducing a new hero, and then we're all excited about it, so we see that <laughs> hero again a month later in a new movie. <laughs> well, we presume so, yes. I think that's a sort of safe assumption. So if they're going to do that, I, so my one prediction for Infinity War is the post credit scene that Marvel always does somehow has like a Brie Larson cameo as as Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, uh, see, you know, I think th- you know there's going to be an after credit scene. Like, there's no question about that. They yeah. just always do it. Um, and so I think the key question is just what is what going is to introduce? Yeah. I have to wonder if maybe, the, quite frankly, the post-credit scene, it might not even necessarily reference another movie, but it might actually reference something which is going to happen in the second movie. Yeah. Or yeah. potentially contradict something that happens in the first. I mean, there's been rumors somebody dies in the first movie. So, oh, I mean, yeah. I would assume lots of people die. you got to thin that <laughs> cast out. Yeah. My, uh, my guess is I, I think we could probably get a clue by just looking at which which ones of these uh, superheroes have more movies coming out like there's a Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy 3 so somebody has to survive you know yeah. from those movies <laughs> to, to make that movie yeah. or unless I guess it's a prequel I don't know but uh, there's 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 lots that could happen there. Uh, we've also been asked why we haven't talked about the Han Solo movie yet for a, being a bunch of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the issue with that is because it's they haven't really promoted it that much. I mean, surprisingly, Mm-mm. compared to most Star Wars movies, you know, we've seen only I think two trailers. Total. It was the teaser trailer for the Super Bowl, yep. and then the more full trailer that came out a month ago, maybe yeah, three maybe weeks ago, ago, something along those lines. Yeah, I, I got to say the teaser trailer didn't do much for me, but. Then I got to see uh, as a Donnie Glover plays as Danny Glover's son, right? Yeah. Donnie Glover plays Lando. Yeah, he is Lando. That's like perfect. I want to see it just, just for him. Yeah, that, <laughs> that I love the line where he says everything you've heard about me is true. Like the way he says it, like the syncopation and, and his his delivery is yep. is just terrific. So I, yeah, I want to see it for that alone. I think the thing with Solo, and I think a lot of the the issue with it is, is it's with having the regular release Star Wars movies now. There isn't quite as much hype on them. I yeah. think that's the the thing that we're seeing, and this being an off release. You know, it's not yep. the next one in the series. It's weird timing too, right? Because like Rogue One came out halfway between episode seven's release and yeah. episode eight's release, and then this one's in May, which I I, I wasn't expecting it until Christmas. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. early, and I think that's the the other thing with it. The thing I think is going to be interesting about it is I'm really wondering how much of a crossover we're going to see with Fast and the Furious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really get the impression that like Han Solo is a street racer. Yeah, well, he says like used to you know been run, running scams and I'm a driver and I'm a flyer and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I also saw just just yesterday I saw uh, randomly on the web. So the actor that plays Han Solo in this um, said that he was asked to sign on for two more movies. Like they're gonna do a whole trilogy of just like Han Solo prequels. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, that, I'm not sure that there's enough there's enough meat to those bones to make that work. Well, presumably they must have liked the way this movie turned out. Then if they want to think, I guess. But like more. the production has like like the rumor is it's just been plagued with problems. They had to can their directors and they brought in <laughs> Ron Howard and they had to bring in acting coaches for a guy that plays Han Solo who who kind of looks the part, but like in the in the trailers he's just kind of bland. Yeah, he is a little bland. That's the one thing. Maybe that's part of actually the reason that we haven't been as excited about it is because. It, he doesn't seem to have quite as much personality, at least in the 
teaser trailer. Yeah. I think the full trailer definitely does a better job yeah, of portraying and, the movie. and he probably suffers by a comparison. I mean, we're, we're asking how much charisma he has as an actor compared to Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of an issue you know, there. Who, who, as much as he's a sourpuss, he, like, in, injects his characters with this sarcastic life. So. Yeah, and I mean, and his characters are all, you know, they're similar. They all have a life of their own, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they have Harrison Ford written all over them. Well, we're gonna, we won't go into too much detail on Han Solo because we are going to do uh, Star Wars predictions for the Han Solo movie. Uh, we'll do that in our next episode, which I think is the last episode we'll do before the movie comes out. So yep. we'll save that for next time. Sounds right. Today we're going to do something a little different compared to our usual episode format. Uh, usually we just have one topic we canvas. So we'll cover, for example, language copyright or, or the time travel patent. But today it's a, a bit more of a blended topic. We're going to start out talking about uh, IP rights as it pertains to buildings and more specifically uh, what is called aerosol art, which is a, <laughs> uh, a, a fancy term for graffiti. And, and then we're going to move into um, how these same kinds of ideas play out with recreating fictional structures in the real world more generally, and then onto just recreating fictional things in fictional worlds more generally. And and on that last point, we are going to circle back to Han Solo because we're going to talk about the Sabic game <laughs> that is being made by a company called Ren Ventures, which of course has nothing to do with Star Wars at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's amusing that we talk about the idea of you know having one specific topic to canvas. I mean, our particular topic today may be canvas um, <laughs> as a sort of joke way to put it uh, dad joke and, and dad idea, joke in the house <laughs> and the idea of you know what can you what can you make on a blank canvas uh, and what can you then do with the canvas but I think that's a, a good way to go and it's I guess the, the way to think about what to ruin today and when we were even designing this episode we were looking at it and saying these things all carry through sort of I think one common thread which is the idea that You've you've starting off with truly sort of something that isn't necessarily blank. Mm -hmm. There is something already out there, and you're moving from what was already out there to something new. And in that way's case, it's a little bit like our character copyright. It's kind of a common theme in a lot of what we talk about. Where like the reason we started this podcast to some extent was people ask us constantly what they can do with all these other properties that these companies own. Because if if you're not well versed in IP and you just sort of Google this stuff and you see the decisions that come (laughs) down, it kind of seems arbitrary. How come person A and B get away with doing things but person C and D get yelled at and get in yeah. trouble for it and there, there's a, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it and I go back to my friend Adam's comment that IP from the outside just appears to be psychotic yeah well and I think it's you know we've said it on this program before and I think it's one of those things unfortunately I think a lot of IP law unfortunately looks like follow the money yeah um, and you know there is some argument that that is the way it turns out and, and, uh, but is that because of the inherent nature of IP or because the people who have the means to enforce rights by definition have to have the money to enforce their yeah. rights I mean, I mean, there, there is something with that, with the, the idea that, you know, in order to be able to bring a Supreme Court, you know, IP case, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Um, and so if it's not worthwhile yeah. to... You, you've you know, got to have a valuable enough property that it's worth the investment in the legal fees to go through the hassle and risk of trying to protect it. Yeah. So when, when, you know, when someone has something small they've created that's not selling well, yeah, it doesn't get enforced because nobody cares. It's not worth enforcing. Yep. There's a sort of a self-selection aspect to the way our legal fee system works. Yeah, I think that is true in what it is. But again, I think the, the thing that we're going to talk about today is... Sort of, in some sense, summing up some of these areas, it's yeah. one of these we we wa- talked about. We wanted to do this sort of IP in buildings for a while because yeah. it's a lot of people look at it and say, you know, oh, it's architecture. You know, what does architecture have to do with intellectual property? And the answer is, well, actually, kind of a lot. Well, and so. it's it's really it's confusing too, even to us. I mean, architecture copyright cases don't come up that much. It's one of those things that. It's out there, sort of like you know, uh, 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 vessel hull design copyrights <laughs> exist, but how often do they get litigated? Uh, but we, this, you know, this it's it's timely because there was a, a recent set of decisions that. Uh, involve not architecture specifically, but IP rights as applied to buildings yep. that are sort of um, the, the kind of cases you see summarized in your Facebook feed, and, and they sound outrageous, but once you dig into the facts, they're really not. And so today we're going to have you, the listener, have the opportunity to make your own predictions. We're <laughs> going to start out with two cases involving IP as applied to buildings. We're going to give you the facts, and then we're going to have you try and guess how these cases came out, and then we'll tell you how they actually came out at the end. So the first case, which you may have heard about, there's a famous group of buildings in New York known as Five Points. It's P-O-I-N-T-Z. And in the 90s, these buildings were covered in graffiti, and the graffiti was profane and generally distasteful. And at some point, the the building owners gave permission to um, a, a local graffiti artist to 
basically curate the structure and sort of decide who gets to put their graffiti on it and who doesn't. And and I think the idea behind this probably was to reduce the amount of um, uh, undesirable graffiti <laughs> and increase the amount of more innocuous graffiti that yep. just sort of looks cool but doesn't say anything horribly offensive. Yep, and I think anybody who's lived in a big city, I think you see this. I mean, I yeah. think you see places where there's, there's a couple here buildings. in St. Louis. There's a couple yep. of graffiti artists who I don't know how they do this. Like they must have spelunking equipment or, or <laughs> repelling equipment because you see like the 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 tops of buildings they have to be hanging down the outside edge to get this graffiti on there. Yep. and I have no idea what they're writing. Like the words make no sense. Yeah, but you definitely also see ones that are sort of clearly like so sort of curated. You know, mm-hmm. where it, it appears that they took an abandoned building, they did something purposefully with it, they just had a graffiti artist do it. You know, and some of these graffiti artists obviously become relatively famous. I mean, you know, there's local ones here that, you know, have art and art museums. What you um, see on the, on the north side of Highway 70 as you go west, there's there's been this, like, this old abandoned building for a long time where the doors and windows are all, all like, yep. like, like, broken. Somebody made giant cardboard cutouts of, like, like, like gnome-like creatures yeah. and then put them in the building like they're going in and out and peeking out of the windows yep. and, and made it go from ugly abandoned building to, to sort of interesting little work of art. Yeah, and I know, I'm assuming that's a local graffiti artist. Unfortunately, I mean, I have no idea who it is. I mean, obviously, if one yeah, of our listeners now, does, so someone took them down. Um, but the um, it's I've seen that that logo around, and you, know, you got to wonder was that done something is again a curated type yeah. of thing done on purpose, or was that something that he just did? So just guerrilla art. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, for five points, um, this uh, this this curating aspect. Um, resulted in the quality of the graffiti on the building being unusually high, and over time, Five Points became uh, relatively famous for its high-quality aerosol art. Uh, it was uh, selected for filming on location. If you wanted to have, uh, you know, a graffiti-backed building for your scene, you'd go there. Um, I think at some point, like European graffiti artists were flown into the U.S. to to add their work to it, and it became kind of a, an interesting, uh, you know, local uh, phenomenon. But you know, at some point, the owners of these buildings wanted to do something else with them, and uh, and demolish them and put up uh, high rise apartments and that sort of thing. And uh, the graffiti artists who put their works in there over the years uh, obviously didn't like it. At some point, they sought an injunction to have their works preserved, uh, but they lost, and uh, the, the graffiti was painted over, and the buildings were eventually knocked down. And then they filed a lawsuit under something called the Visual Artists' Rights Act of 1990, which is part of our <laughs> Copyright Act. Kirk, how often do Vera lawsuits come up? <laughs> <laughs> Not all that much, um, I think, is the answer, because they're primarily directed to what it, what is called moral rights. And they're kind of these weird rights in copyright. I think we've mentioned them before. Something we don't really have in the yeah. U.S. just as a, as a normal matter. It's a very European concept, and a lot of the reason we added them is basically to comport with international treaty, and yeah, that's part the, of the reason the it's in convention. 1990. Yeah, with the Berne yeah. Convention. Which has been around since the 1800s, and we've been one of the last holdouts, uh, partially because I think we didn't want to have to add these moral rights. And yep. one of the reasons they're tricky is because most, most copyright rights you can give to your employer or yep. To a company or something, but moral rights you can't. You really cannot anymore. transfer yeah. moral rights; it's impossible. What, what you end up under contract when you have contracts involving moral rights is effectively a, an agreement not to sue or not to assert yeah. them. Yeah. So in a normal copyright, you know, you're going. Someone hires you to write some source code, and under normal American law, as the programmer, you'd say, "Okay, well, I'll write it. You're going to pay me, and I agree that you, the person paying for it, get to own all the copyright rights in the yep. source code." But you can't do that with the moral rights. Yep. You have to say, "I also covenant to refrain from enforcing." Them. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you literally, the the, the, own, the copyrights, the software company in this case does own all the copyright rights. Yeah. I mean, that's literally, they transferred all the copyright rights, but they can't transfer these moral rights. Yeah. And they're, they're very limited as to what they are. Yeah, the copyright rights are more commercial in nature, yeah. copy produced, the things that make money. The moral rights are things like the right of attribution or what was relevant in this case, the right of integrity as applied to the original work. Yep. Um, and basically what these things a lot of times are is that when you have works of... Certain, you know, it's not just something that's randomly created. We talked about the fact that copyright sort of attaches automatically, but this is something that that acquires some value distinction, something along those lines. Usually, they're public. I, I was talking about this the other day, and it's, you know, I, I done it as I think they have to be public art. In some I think they have to be public art because you can't acquire distinction unless it is public art. I mean, yeah. how are you ever going to get that? Yeah. Way? The, so for the right of integrity to attach, the work has to be of quote unquote recognized stature. So like, yep. you know, uh, you know, if there were moral rights to the Mona Lisa, I don't know if there are. Or not, but yep. if there were, clearly it has recognized stature, yeah. right? But you know, my my four year old's clay, you know, little clay figurine that he brought home from preschool the other day. 
I can throw it out. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, it, he's not going to moral rights in it because it's not of recognized stature. And again, I think it, there's a lot of this which says they have to kind of be public artworks in some respects. Yeah. Not necessarily that the, the graffiti itself is public. You obviously have like a photograph of the graffiti. Yeah, it's which on is private public, property. Which is known, you know, something like that. Yeah, they're on private property, but obviously they're somewhat known. And again, a lot of it when we look at moral rights, what we're kind of looking at is it's a, sort of going back to the idea of artists' rights. And mm-hmm. what we're really seeing in the artists' rights of this is saying, hey, look, I'm entitled to say that's my artwork. Yeah. And interestingly enough, we talked about previously the sort of disconnect between plagiarism and copyright. What we see in moral rights is a little bit of the idea of copyright taking in plagiarism Mm -hmm. type concepts. And really that idea that says, hey, if you can't say my work is yours, I'm entitled to say it's my work. And you kind of see that in the real copyright context yep. um, with the idea of it's, you know, okay, yeah, this person has it, you know, I did it for them, they wrote, they did, they have the code, it's in their software. I can still say I'm the one who physically programmed it. And you can kind of see where that mm-hmm. comes from. You know, the the ability to basically be able to market yourself as an artist, you know, as a software programmer, as anybody who works in copyright, of saying, it's mine, I did this. Yeah. Even though you can't make copies of it. And 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 because these moral rights are are inalienable basically, you can't get rid of them or transfer them, they they stick around even if you don't own the thing that you made. So in this case, you know, the graffiti artists in some cases jumped fences to get onto this property yep. and and paint on the building. You know, you could debate it's with with the sort of tacit permission of the owner, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure if that issue was really ever resolved. Uh, but you know, once they get there, they obviously don't own the building. Yeah. Uh, they they presumably own the paint they used, but you know, there's there's rules that that becomes part of the the fixtures at that point of the building. So they they don't own the original work. The building owner does. Yep. But the thing with the moral rights is the the artist still has those rights. The sort of the right of integrity being a good example, even if the original copy that the right protects is no longer theirs. Yeah, and I think that that's the the thing to keep in mind here is we've got that sort of intriguing issue of the moral rights attaching. The other piece of this is, and I think it's worth keeping in mind. Remember, these were somewhat curated. Yeah. So you could bump into the fact that arguably the building owner and part of the exception with this, and I think something worth pointing out, they could potentially paint over something. Mm-hmm. You know, they could say, hey, I think this is offensive and I'm going to paint over it, or I think this is distasteful, I'm going to paint over it. My, I don't know a lot about the way the five points work, but I have to would presume that actually they did paint over repeatedly where even one artist would paint over another artist's mm-hmm. work. So it wasn't like these were, you know, works that were never destroyed. These things probably were regularly destroyed. Yeah, probably a good four inches of paint on the yes. side of those buildings. And I think that's you know a worthwhile thing to be thinking about, that they were you know destroyed on a regular basis. The other thing, when you talk about the idea like them being used in the backdrops for films, you know, there's there's issues there of the idea that, you know, hey, somebody's already recreated a work. So mm-hmm. you're talking about the copyright holder with it. Well, now it's recreated in the movie. The movie's presumably had the rights to add that as a recreation from the building owner. So you've also got it in there. So the artist argued that the works had acquired the, the recognized stature that's needed based on their appearance and film and the sort of national or international repute of this this uh um, this development, and that when the build when they were painted over and the buildings torn down, the right of integrity was violated. The case went to a jury, and the question is, who won? Yeah. And we'll answer that at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, you guys formulate your responses. This is your prediction episode. Yes. Okay. So the second case is is uh, the simpler facts, but in, in some cases, in some ways, even more um, I don't know, alarming in my view. Um, so the second case involves uh, art and buildings being knocked down, but in the reverse order. And the second case uh, was in Michigan, I think. And what happened is an architect had uh, come up with a copyright to uh, residential architecture, including the blueprints and the plans and the elevations and all that stuff. And then somebody else built a home that copied that architecture without permission. And what made this interesting is that the architect did not just sue for copyright infringement. He sued under a part of the Copyright Act called Section 503. And that's alarming because Section 503 is the part of the act that says that the owner of the copyright has the right to have infringing articles impounded or destroyed. Yep. So he says, I want the house knocked down. Yep. So and I think that's the really interesting thing about this is it's – and this is the kind of things that are hiding in the copyright laws. And quite frankly, you're hiding in statutes. They're hiding the everywhere, yeah. Is – you know, that he has the right in this to come in and say, hey, look, if this thing's found to be a copyright infringement, I have the right to have it destroyed. That's part of my actual right. It's not just that you can you have to pay me or I can enjoin yep. you from using it for something. I can literally have it destroyed. That's what it says. That's yep. what Congress wrote. And this is why we have courts look at these and say, what does the statute mean? Does, does it mean that or not? And this is where, you know, literalist interpretations of law get tricky. I think most people listening to this would agree. Destroying a house seems a little excessive yeah. for a copyright. 
copyright violation. Well, kind of like those FBI warnings that you're going to go to prison for 10 years and have a $250,000 fine. Yeah, well, and I think the real key thing about this thing here, too, is there's somebody living in the house that didn't build it. Yeah, somebody bought it. They didn't, I mean, they had no reason to know. And I'm guessing your typical closing contract doesn't include a, a copyright warranty or indemnity. <laughs> it might now. <laughs> it does now, yeah. Yeah, your standard realtor contract probably doesn't. So, so, um, so the court had to figure this out. Uh, the buyer, uh, also complicating this, the architect filed what's called a lease pendants uh, notice, yep. which is they go to the county recorder's office and put a lien on the house. Now there's a, a stain, they say, on the title of the home. Um, so, you know, destruction and infringing, uh, destruction of uh, infringing goods is is easy where you have, uh, you know, your typical black market stuff, yeah. bootleg copies and things like that. But the question is, uh, what about a house? Can they seize your home? Or, you know, and that's the other thing. You can also impound and seize things. So can someone take my house? Can they have it destroyed? So yeah. make your predictions and we'll come back to that at the end of the episode. Yep. Um, so uh, getting down into, the, into the, the weeds on this, Kirk, we've got Yankee. Oh, again. <laughs> Yet another copyright issue somehow. Uh, we need like a little like, teaser thing to have in our thing whenever we say Yankee or something, music clip or something. <laughs> yeah, the, the, these are weird issues, and this, this, these may seem like isolated cases, but um, it, it, it comes up more than you'd think. In fact, my, my alma mater that I, I, I always uh, mention on the show, uh, University of Iowa, uh, Iowa fans are crazy people, as you probably know from listening to this show. Or, or if you know one in real life, you also know that Kirk is uh, tangentially related to some, so he's <laughs> familiar with the, with the disease. Iowa State, actually. Uh, Iowa State, yeah, which is almost worse in some ways. Uh, but uh, somebody in Iowa City is remodeling their home to look like the stadium where, where the Iowa Hawkeyes play. And you know, aside from really irritating his neighbors who have tried to get <laughs> tried to get it enjoined, I think before. You know, there's a question there: Is there an architecture right in in a publicly owned building like that that would be infringed. You know, in theory, could the university enforce that? Now, in this case, probably not because it's an ancient stadium, so the copyright's probably long since run. Actually, it was built before there was an architecture copyright, yeah. so probably not. But in the, in theory or in the abstract, uh, it's it's a valid question. Um, and I think it's also worth pointing out in this that you can't have copyright in an architectural design. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have it in the blueprint itself, um, and the idea that the blueprints can't necessarily be copied, but you can potentially get the the actual building can end up with a copyright attaching, effectively as a work of sculpture. Yeah. And I think that's worth noting that you know it's it's I think relatively accepted um, by the 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 uh, the courts and the yeah. copyright office that you know it is something to do it. Um, the other thing with it is, and I think it's also worth pointing out, it isn't necessarily just even the structure of the building. You can actually get copyright in the facade of the building. Mm-hmm. It's simply its facing or its appearance. Um, so we can look at it and say, okay, it's only the front facing of the building. The back end sort of doesn't have any meaning. So it's it's worth pointing out that you know there is copyright in these types of things. We have copyright in architecture. So when we're talking about the this, even in the abstract, we're not saying these are things that might be subject to copyright. These are things which are subject to copyright. Yep. The question is, what is the scope of that copyright? And the scope is a tricky question with buildings, especially because you have the the you have your competing patent rules that cover functional and useful things, and copyright, by the definition of the copyright statute, cannot cover processes, functions, and useful things. Yep. So, to the extent that your architecture serves a, a utilitarian function, those elements of it may not actually be coverable. Yeah, and this is something the court has. To to grapple with on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, they grapple yeah. with it in fashion and the cheerleading yeah. episode or cheerleading case where what aspects of a cheerleading uniform are functional versus what aspects are ornamental. Or decorative, yeah. Um, you know, this is a constant issue they're bumping into in conjunction with copyright because, again, you can only copyright the functional issues. So, again, you know, the fact that the building has a door is probably functional. Yeah. Where the door is located, how big it is, what color it is, those kind of things may be considered to be, you know, more expression. Or maybe even its shape, which we're going to get into when we talk about bag end you know, <laughs> <Yep>. in this <laughs> case. So we're going to going to compare and contrast two different examples of, of copyright issues that may arise in the context of buildings, uh, looking at The Simpsons House and Bag End. Yep. So let's start with The Simpsons House. If you haven't seen The Simpsons, I don't know how this is possible, but... Um, <laughs> how many episodes are they up to? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's been going on forever. I think Simpsons and Meet the Press probably like, is the oldest still running. <laughs> 60 minutes. Um, but, you know, so The Simpsons House has a very distinct appearance, color, shape, style, even the interior layout, I think, is pretty well known at this point. It's, it's all pretty well defined. It's also decidedly silly. Everything is is these weird, um, like bright pastel colors, yeah, bright like, pastels. like green That's really tables. The of Simpsons, and, yeah, it's all bright pastels. Well, at some point, there was a contest. Somebody built a house modeled on the Simpsons house, and you could win it. And I saw a picture of it before the show. It's hideous. Like nobody yeah. would ever want this house. Um, but it, you know what, what's what's interesting to me about the Simpsons house is that it already has a visual depiction because it's animation. 
that what makes it even more interesting is because it's animation and because animated characters have weird body proportions so that the faces are more expressive and it's easier to to to, to make the uh, the animation uh the the animated sets in turn have sort of weird and and I'm going to say elastic proportions as yep. needed to serve the the particular needs of the plot in any given episode so if you were to make as people have real life versions of the Simpsons house I, I think there's a good argument that there's some element of artistic discretion needed to transform uh, a purely animation depiction of a house that doesn't exist in the real world and perhaps couldn't yeah. into one that not only does exist but complies with building codes and a person could actually live in and use and, and would otherwise be functional. So question number one, if you were to do that, are you infringing anything at all? Yeah, and I think that's that is a really it's a question difficult question. Yeah, because what we're dealing with is, and and again, it's not like we're talking about hey, you're building something where it was filmed, you know, at a real and house, we're just and recreating the real recreating thing. You know? Yeah, you're you're literally copying something which was created by the mind of the author. And we got into this, you know, copywriting of universe previously, and these kind of aspects. The Simpsons house is a specific element. Is it a character? Yeah. You know, it, you get into the idea, and, and there's arguments to say it is. I mean, I think one of the ones that I, I pick on even more than The Simpsons House, what about Hogwarts? Yeah. You know, Hogwarts has a very specific appearance. Or if you really want to get down into, you know, a, you know, a building that has a specific appearance and well-recognized, Cinderella's Castle. Oh, yeah. You know, which is based on a um, what's that? Reichenstein yeah. in Germany. Yeah. yeah, you know, so yeah, it's obviously based upon a German castle, but it you know it it looks nothing really like it. It has design yeah. elements more, of it. More of an inspired by than yeah. a, than a, a, a copy. <laughs> I'm of. going to get into inspired yeah. by at some point in time. But well, and the other interesting issue, you know, the Simpsons house in the show has only a two dimensional animated depiction. Yep. If you're building a real house, now you've got to expand it to three dimensions. And like I said, there's other design considerations, a lot of which are functional yep. that would that would go into that. Um, is is there a decent argument that you're not really infringing a copyright at all? And if you are, what is the nature of the copyright? Is it a copyright to a, a, a visual work, which is the film, or is there an architecture copyright in the design of the Simpsons house, which would be weird because the house itself, other than the obnoxious colors, is sort of a typical yeah. two-story. And there's no real blueprint for it or anything yeah. like that that you sort of get into. And I think that's the thing you get into with these. You also bump into the the idea, and I think the, the fact of the real, real modification is an important one. And I'm trying to remember, I want to say there was an episode of one show, and for some reason, it's Family Guy is jumping to mind, but that may not be what it was, where there's a scene in it where, like, they walk out the same door into different rooms of the house in the same episode <laughs> repeatedly, and, and it's done as a joke of the yeah. fact that the house cannot physically exist, yeah. uh, because they literally, like, it's the same door leads to every other room in the house, um, and you kind of get into that. Sometimes that's done as part of the gag. Yeah. Um, and so when you look at it and say, well, if I wanted to recreate that house, how on earth could you do it? You could. And I'm thinking The Simpsons kind of has that because, you know, in the end you have the, you know, you know, Homer's running from the car. He runs through the door and lands on the couch. Mm-hmm. But the couch is obviously in the front of the house, not in the rear. Yep. And so you have a little bit of that sort of, you know, playing around of exactly where is everything. Um you know, with it, you also have the issue, and I think that's the other thing to point out, um, using the idea of the family room and the couch, that scene gets played with in virtually every episode, oh, yeah, so it appears different. It's known as a couch gag now. Yeah, I mean, and that's the couch gag is, is sort of unique. When you bump into the couch gag, well, what actually is the appearance of the couch? It's had 300 different appearances, so, you know, including not being there. And so, you know, what do you— <laughs> Which is also the joke. Which is the couch joke, is yeah. And so, you know, what do you bump into of, you know, what actually is the appearance of that room? That room has hundreds of different appearances. Mm-hmm. So let's compare that to a second example, which is I'm, I used Bag End because I think our typical listener probably at least is familiar with The Hobbit, if not the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yep. But Bag End, if, if you're not, is the name of the Hobbit hole where uh, Frodo and Bilbo Baggins live in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, it's um, technically Bilbo's house, if I remember correctly. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah. But, and he like adopts Frodo when his parents die or something. So we're going to set aside the Peter Jackson films for now because that's one person's licensed depiction yep. of it. But what, what would be to stop? me from uh, making my own completely independent uh, bag end, which I think people have done. And the reason this is an interesting question to me as compared to the Simpsons example is in the Simpsons, we don't have a narrative description of the house. We have a visual depiction. We know what it's quote unquote supposed to look like. 
But for Bag End, we have a narrative description only that, that is incomplete in a lot of ways. So there's some stuff that if you've read The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, you know. Yep. It's got a round door. Yep. The door has a doorknob in the middle. It probably has a lot of gardening and other kinds of things. It has things. grass on the roof. It has grass it's on the really, roof. Again, it has it's a, essentially partially buried. Yeah. It, it has a beer cellar, of course. <laughs> uh, th- things like that. But you can imagine, whereas with The Simpsons House, if I had five different people try to make their vision of what it would look like, you could get five houses that look generally the same with some minor differences, yep. but they're all going to be recognizable as basically being the Simpsons house. Yep. But for Bag End, um, again, setting aside Peter Jackson, I think if you took five different people and said, build this, you could get five structures that look very different. Yeah. And I think it, it, you see it as well if you go back to sort of before there were Peter Jackson movies, and I remember this, you know, miniature modelers and stuff who guys oh, who yeah. did like train, yeah. you know, miniature trains or did, you know, miniature figures and stuff like that. A lot of them created the Shire. You know, as a place to do it, and I think if you were to go and look at those, there were a lot of questions. And actually, one of those that I think is a good example is the: it's recognized that they are partially buried. They have you know sort of grass yep. on the roof. What does it mean to be that? I mean, Peter Jackson's interpretation really kind of builds them into the earth, but you could also build it as it's much more just sort of natural construction, mm-hmm. you know, materials. You know, yes, it, it sort of grows from the earth, but it really built into it. You could also build it as a cave. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the you know there's kind of some extremes there as to what it potentially would be, all of which would meet the narrative description. And what's, what's interesting about this is this kind of goes back to our character copyright episode. If it is an infringement of of Lord of the Rings, um, it's you know there's obviously there's going to be no architecture copyright in a narrative description yep. of a fictional structure. I think that's pretty pretty stretched. Yeah, I think that's really stretched. I mean, so you'd be arguing that it, it's an infringement of the work itself in some way. But how attenuated is that? Well, I think we're getting we're getting a character copyright again. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of bumping into the is the house a character, and now what we're really bumping into is is it sufficiently delineated? Yeah, now we're back to learned hands, uh, indistinctly marked. If if Tolkien had described the house in inhumane, painstaking detail, well, which course, he does, which he, he kind of like, everything. But you know, imagine you know, yeah, like like I can tell you what the weather was for a hundred straight years in, uh, in Middle <laughs> Earth, um, and, and exactly where 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 you will and will not find gnats. Um, but, <laughs> um, but you know, if if he'd spent you know twenty pages laying out all the details of this, would that be distinctly enough marked that that bag and could be considered a character to the point where you could not make any recreation of it, even using uh, a different medium like that? Now, it, that's a pretty it's a closer issue where you're going to write a book, say, yeah. that would compete directly with Lord of the Rings, same medium, same format, and you're referencing the same thing. But I'm just building something in real yeah. life that doesn't say Lord of the Rings. It doesn't say the Hobbit. And we're talking about a utilitarian structure, too. Yeah. This is not necessarily yeah. making a piece of artwork that represents this. This is building it as a home. But somebody who walks up to it is going to say, oh, cool, you made Bag End. Yeah. But what's what's the issue there? The, the issue is there might be confused into thinking that the Bag End that they found is somehow associated with Tolkien, but that's not copyright's problem. Yeah, it's not copyright's problem. That's, that's trademark's that's problem. At the same time, you also bump into it and say, would they really be confused? I mean— I think there's a strong argument, no. Yeah. And if they were, you could put a sign out front that said, we have nothing to do with the estate of Tolkien. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the, the thing you're really getting into with this, and I think this is what—and what, a lot of what I think is interesting in this, we talked about the idea, and I've talked about the fact that you know I previously written about the idea of copyright in universe and the idea of you know what does it mean. We're talking about things where we're what we're really seeing here, if there's infringement, is some kind of an infringement of character copyright. That's what it appears to be. And again, because we don't have a visual depiction, even if we do have a visual depiction, getting back to the Simpsons and those kind of things, arguably it's still covered by character copyright. It's the same. It's going to mm-hmm. be the same basis at least as to what's you know giving it its its grounds. Knowing that we have that, where is that attaching, and how do we get this? Is it sufficiently delineated? Mm-hmm. We get to you know to, to learn hand, and where do we draw that line? Well, here's an interesting hypothetical. What if I wanted to make a bar, say, yeah. and uh, I'm going to call it uh, just Ben's place, but when you walk inside, it's the Moss Eisley Cantina. It's clearly the Moss Eisley Cantina. Yeah. Have I infringed anything at that point? I think, yeah, you've got some real questions and you get into those. Hey, you made it look like it. You know, do you have an external, ex- you know, internal design? 
what did you co- what did you copy? You know, again, yeah. yeah, you already copied the look of the bar, but that's different because they they had to build the actual set to yep. film on. But if you've ever been on a movie set or even a play set, you know the 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 sets you know the sets are often not what they seem on on yes. the show. You have you have partial sets with with certain angles that are never completed, so that you can get cameras in and film. There's usually not a ceiling, so you can get lighting in and that kind of thing. So it's it's not really a complete set of a bar. It's not a completely finished bar. Yep. So, but if I were to take what they do give and finish it, um, you know, g- g- could there be a lawsuit there? And, and again, the concern is I'm trading off the the goodwill Lucas has built up yeah. in in Moss Eisley as a concept and in Star Wars. That's why people come to my bar, at least in the outset. So now we're into something called initial interest confusion, maybe where <laughs> I'm luring people in based on, hey, look, it's a real life Star Wars bar, but they're not going to be confused into thinking it's somehow associated with Lucasfilm or Disney. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's I think the thing, and then you, you bump into this: this trademark, is this copyright? What is it? And you know, it's great to talk about the idea of saying, "Hey, we've got you know the Moss Eisley Cantina." What if I didn't copy the Moss Eisley Cantina? What if I just made a cantina that looks like it would be in the same kind yeah, of city as the Moss same Eisley general Cantina. kind of style? Now we're into these trade dress issues we talked yeah. about in our first episode. Well, we we may get an answer to some of this soon, uh, thanks to a case that was brought to our attention by Ed from Iska. Um, let's look at Sabic uh, S A B A. CC. Yep. So there's this, if you've seen The Empire Strikes Back, which if you haven't seen it, go see it. And why are you not why are you listening to this <laughs> podcast if you haven't <laughs> yeah. seen The Empire Strikes the wrong Back? Place. Uh, there's a throwaway line uh, near the end where uh, Han and Leia get to Cloud City. We get to meet Lando Calrissian. And Han tells Lando there's something wrong with the Falcon. And Landon sa- Lando says, what have you done to my ship? Yep. And Han says, your ship? You lost her to me fair and square. <laughs> and that's it. So we get this little bit of, of fluff background about this, you know, there being some tension between these two characters, which is is not provided for any reason related to establishing trademark rights or copyright rights. It's just a little narrative element to make us not quite trust Lando and yeah. kind of foreshadow that he's up to no good. Yeah, and well, I think it's also the question, it's even been poked out of the extended universe, is, is he trying to warn Han? Is yeah. he trying to warn Han away? What does this have to do with Lando's character? I mean, there's a lot that's read into that scene, quite yeah. frankly. So, you know, we learned Lando used to own the Falcon. He lost it to Han in some kind of game of chance. That, that's the extent of it. But, you know, you and, you and I were both involved in the extended universe over the years, and as, as always happens... This one little nugget gets expanded into something else, yep. and the game is called Sabic or Sabak. I don't know how you pronounce it, and probably Lucasfilm doesn't know how you pronounce it originally. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, it, you know this is probably widely known to your your true believer Star Wars fans that uh, that Lando lost the Falcon to Han in a game of Sabic. Well, in 2015, uh, a company in the UK called Ren Ventures made a card game, I think they kickstarted it, called uh, Sabak or Galactic Sabak, and the the card game uses a, a Star Wars-like font on the front with the, the flowing yellow letters. It's got some in- imagery from the movies. There's the, the gaffy sticks that the Tusken Raiders use from Tatooine. Uh, it's got the Star Wars, uh, the Orabesh alphabet that Star Wars uses. Mm-hmm. And uh, in November of uh, 2015... They did something most startups don't think to do. They filed for a federal trademark registration on Sabic as applied to their card games. And this, this sailed through. It was not opposed. Normally when you get a, a trademark, uh, you, you, you know, it has to be published once it's allowed. Yep. And then anybody who would be aggrieved by the trademark has yep. the chance to come in and say you shouldn't have it's that. It's also important to point out it's also examined by a professional examiner. And that examiner is supposed to look for conflicting trademarks. Yeah. So, you know, the, the United States Patent and Trademark Office found no conflicting trademarks. Yeah, they found nothing. So the case was a Allowed, and um, at some point, Lucasfilm figured out that they did this. And uh, in 2017, May of, uh, of last year, Lucasfilm filed what's called a cancellation proceeding, which is where they step in and say, hey, this really shouldn't have been issued in the first place, uh, and now it, it needs to be uh, withdrawn. Yeah, and a cancellation proceeding is basically because somebody says, hey, you're, for some reason, the trademark was screwed up and granted yeah, For whatever reason, it was missed. It was yeah. missed in the publication period. But nevertheless, these rights should not exist. Yeah. Well, Lucas provided quite a bit of evidence in support of that. They pointed out that uh, the word Sabak had become part of the canon as early as 1980 in books. It was used in a TV program in 1985. Although I read the, their pleadings. I didn't see what that was. I'm really curious to yeah. know what, what it was in 85 that, that said that. Uh, they, they looked at the novelization of Empire Strikes Back. It was apparently used there, including some details on the game. Uh, they said that it was used in uh, – do you remember the West End Games oh, uh, yeah, RPGs? Oh, yeah, 
Yeah, we we used to play those, and my uh, in college, my my roommate uh, was was the uh, uh, the captain of his own YT thirteen hundred stock light freighter, uh, which he called the Leap Year Buzzard, <laughs> and then he was a big car guy, so he was Han Mopar, and his co pilot was my friend Ed, not Ed from Iska, different Ed. Uh, he was the Wookie Chimichanga. So. Yeah, so somebody's been watching too much Christmas special there. <laughs> they call your Wookie Chimichanga. But you know, the, the West End Games books had uh, had a Cloud City uh, uh, rule book that had the Sabak rules, and it was mentioned in Star Wars Monopoly. And, and and all kinds of things. It was in the card game too. The collectible card game had like re- Sabak references yeah, and some of right, the cards. Yeah. And so anyway, Lucas says uh, Ren Ventures can't register it because Lucas used it first, and that seems like a pretty open and shut case, doesn't it? Arguably, yes. I mean, the question is, is did they use it as a trademark? Yeah, that's what Ren said. They filed for summary judgment in the cancellation proceeding, which is not a lawsuit; it's an administrative proceeding. Yep. It's at the United States Patent and Trademark Office, yes. so it's like a lawsuit, but it's it takes similar. place at a federal agency. But you don't have a federal judge looking at it. The scope of discovery is more limited. Um, it's not like a full-blown lawsuit. Yeah. So, uh, so Wren filed for judgment in that case, arguing that Lucasfilm submitted all this material that showed Star Wars being used as a trademark, but didn't show Sabak being used as a trademark. And this must have spooked Lucasfilm enough, because they then filed a federal lawsuit yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to deal with this and then sought to have the cancellation proceeding stayed pending the outcome of the lawsuit and that would have been not the end of it but that would have been the end of the interesting part of the story for now because that lawsuit is obviously still going on it was yep. just filed back in December except just last week Ren Ventures filed a trademark infringement lawsuit against Lucasfilm for the upcoming Han Solo movie based on a statement by Donnie Glover that the Sabic game is part of the plot yep now obviously they haven't seen the movie it's not shown in the no. three or anything like that, but it's just simply based upon the statement of one of the actors that it occurs. So this, this is the strangest thing. You've got, and it, it's Ren Ventures. Kylo Ren. <laughs> Ren Ventures in, in 2015. So it's this is the strangest situation to me where they're clearly inspired by, at least, Star yep. Wars. They're making a card game called Sabak, which is a made-up word by Lucasfilm, and it's Ren Ventures. Well, by Lucas. And Lucas, I mean. <laughs> and it's using this imagery, um, and, and so now they're saying that this upcoming Han Solo movie is going to confuse people into thinking it's somehow associated with Ren Ventures. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the thing you're really getting into with this, and it's, I think this is the thing, is we're, we're arguing about trademark law here. Yes. Trademark law is all about likelihood of confusion. And so I think that's the, you know, in some sense you can see where it's going, which is the, if we have these two things out, who's confusing who? And really the question is who's entitled to this trademark? I mean, LucasArts is effectively arguing we're entitled to it because we used it first. Ren Ventures is coming back and saying, no, you're not entitled to it because we're the first to use it as a trademark. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're now both using it as a trademark. It ultimately comes down to this, literally who used it first. Yeah, I mean, could, could you not just sign a coexistence agreement? And say we're going to make these card games. We're going to stay out of film and everything else. <laughs> well, you got to wonder. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously plenty of ways this could settle. If I'm Lucas, I don't do that. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm not going to send some signal that everybody can start ripping off all these all yeah. these side pieces of our universe. Yes, but what I what it makes me think of in conjunction with it is troops. If you remember <laughs> troops, I mean, it's, I'm pretty sure it's unauthorized. But if you haven't seen it, it's a, a short that's basically done in the style of cops uh, from back when it was. But it it's does really stormtroopers. It's extremely funny. But it ends with a joke, which is effectively a reference to. Um, the attack on on you know the Luke's homestead um, and the Jawas and everything else sort of uh, related to it and you, again you kind of have that issue is does Lucas really want to encourage anything along these lines but it's obviously happening of sort of things in yeah. off the universe well and historically Lucasfilm has been pretty hands off about going after fan stuff but yeah. it's not Lucasfilm anymore calling the shots it's, yeah, it's Disney. Disney Disney's been a little more hands on and this is also clearly IP. not just you know fan work that's you know not really for profit or anything like that. this is a for profit game company I think without any yeah. question. Yeah, I mean they did a kick, Kickstarter and everything else. Um, well, it's 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 a it's an interesting case um, because you you know I what what I find odd is that p- part of the of the the complaint that was filed by Ren Ventures says that the problem with the Han Solo movie is that it's going to mislead people into thinking that Ren Ventures are just playing off the goodwill of Star Wars. Yeah, but is that not the case? <laughs> well, I, I, and I think part of it when we've got into this, quite frankly, is I have the feeling this is a, we need to get this resolved. Yeah. And what the issue with it is is you know since essentially you know Disney Lucas Arts, his film did raise the the stakes from this being cancellation 
information into a court proceeding, yep. you've got ventures needing to present every possible defense. This is where know, I go back to follow the money. You know, we're going to get an answer on this at some point, assuming they don't settle. They may settle. Uh, because, uh, you know, and, and maybe Ren Ventures is angling for an acquisition or some kind. Who knows what they're trying to accomplish. Um but, you know, Disney has the vested interest in this Star Wars property they spent an ungodly number of billions of dollars to acquire. Yeah. And so, of course, they're going to protect it. And so, you know, it, maybe it's not so much that the outcomes follow the money, but the cases that have outcomes yeah. follow the money. And that's and the good thing about it, I think, what we have with it, quite frankly, this is a strange situation. But it is also a very good set of facts to get at some of these issues. And I think that's the thing that I can look at with this because we do have a true sort of throwaway line that's, that's the famous part. Mm-hmm. We have it coming in into an expanded universe with not really any description. So we've really got this idea of what is this trademark use. Yeah. And we've got not a, a, a product that just simply happens to be using the name, but what is clearly supposed to be referencing yeah. the product. It's the same thing. The one thing I, I did not see Disney assert, maybe they will at some point, was I, I wonder if there's any strength to the argument that that Sabic is applied to a card game is just plain not trademarkable because it's just the name of the card game, like poker or solitaire. Yep. It's it's just the name of this game in the universe, and so it's inherently descriptive and not trademarkable. Just like Java is the name of a language, England is the name of a country. Yeah. You can't use it as a trademark to describe a country or, or programming yeah. language. Likewise, could you not say you can't use Sabak to describe a card game? It's just the name of the game. Yeah, I think you potentially get into that, though. Sometimes I think you want to. I think yeah. you, you bump into the, you know, hey, it's a card game you've created. You potentially want to have it. Again, maybe we're getting into a little bit of a follow-the-money type of question, yeah. but I think the thing you really get into there is it's what, what can of worms does that open? Yep. Well, let's go back to our, our cases that started all this out, the five points case. Um, the outcome was the graffiti artist won, and the court found not only that the works were of uh, the required recognized stature, but that the building owners acted willfully and maliciously in painting over them, and so the court applied the maximum statutory penalty under the Copyright Act of $150,000 per work. Uh, Now, there were over 11,000 works of art (laughs) on this building, but only a small handful, a couple dozen, were found to have the sufficient stature to merit protection. So, still, that said, um, you know, a couple dozen uh, um, graffiti artists were awarded six and a half million dollars in in a a verdict. In a verdict. Now, whether or not they got paid is another question entirely. Yeah, and so this is the part that's going to be the the salacious thing that shows up on your Facebook page. Graffiti artists spray someone's building, and then they're owed seven million dollars for for having it painted over. You know, there there are procedures that will deal with this. There's an appeal. There'll be, you know, you can do a a remitter after the fact and say, we'll we'll agree not to appeal if you knock it down to $100,000. The thing I think is really interesting here, though, and it's the comment that you just made, is it was a relatively small percentage of actual works that were found to have the the required level, recognizing that there probably are even more works that have been painted over in the course of this. You know, you really got a question here of, and if you're the building owner, when does something rise to this level? Yep. I mean, you've looked at it and said, well, it is, they won the vast majority of yeah. these. And the, I mean, the lesson is don't don't just let people draw on your buildings, you know, and then and then come in later. And part of the, what motivated this too was was how this went down. Like yeah. the the works were painted over in the middle of the night. Like there's a lot of things that happened that just made it seem like it was sort of malicious and mean spirited, which yeah. which may have motivated the judge's outcome. So so that's that case. The other one, the the Michigan case. Uh, the court said there's no authority to support the idea that Section 503 will allow you to seize or destroy a house. So, <laughs> yep. so sanity prevails. Uh, they said it applies to movable goods only. And even more interesting, the lawyers who advanced this argument in that case had already tried it once before and been shot down. So this court found that other case, which the lawyers did not tell them about, even though you're supposed to do that. Uh, and, and not only did they not order the house to be knocked down, they ordered sanctions, they required the uh, the attorneys doing this to pay the legal fees of the homeowners and allow the homeowners to file uh, a counterclaim for slander of title. So effectively, uh, the lien was was a was was done wrongful, like, wrongfully, maliciously, yeah, maliciously yeah. against the the title. Yeah. So so that case also uh, sanity prevailed. So there you go. Well, compare that to your own notes and see how things came out. Okay, we have mail, although not not that much today. Uh, the first one is is, is a two word response I got that said "you're primitive," which uh, I believe is in response to the Black Panther review we did. Where I had uh, characterized, forget what I said, but uh, characterized the the Central African cultures as compared to the European cultures as primitive. Um, so that was probably a poor choice of words on my part. So uh, mea culpa. But the point was that um, 
you know, you've got Wakanda is like the paragon of technological advancement and civilization uh, as contrasted to Europe, which is supposed to, I think, be like an object lesson in how Europe is contrasted to the more rural parts of the world. Yep. And it doesn't change the fact that it's an awesome movie. It's still an awesome movie, yes. Okay, the next one. What did you guys think of oil states? Kirk, what was oil states? So oil states is the uh, the case that just went to the Supreme Court. A just, decision just came down um, as to whether or not the uh, the AIA, um, the, the case that— American the Vents American Act. Act, which modified the, the patent law and created um, PR, Interparties Review, and a lot of the after-review procedures of the Patent Office, which are being used to challenge patents, whether or not that was a constitutional procedure. So that was the case that went down. Decision did just come down. It did just find that it was a constitutional procedure. They can institute these types of proceedings. Yep. You know, my basic take of it, and I think the, the, the interesting takeaway is I kind of look at it and say I'm not sure the other outcome was possible mm-hmm. just because I think the disruption would have been so dangerous from it. It's also the nature of the, the basis for the claim. So there, there's an argument that patents are private property rights and that a, you have to have a, a regular Article Three court take those rights yep. away. You can't just do it through the patent office, but I, I read the case when it came down, and I thought the court clearly left a door open to argue that it may be unconstitutional on other bases, like due yep. process and things like that. And I think that's the, the thing. What, what My prediction for oil states had basically been that I figured they would find it either constitutional but leave a door open for a potential other mm. challenge to say there's problems with it or find it unconstitutional but point out what would make it constitutional. Yep. I, I really had the feeling they were going to kind of walk the fine line. I did think it was interesting we did have a two-judge dissent. Um, Roberts and Gorsuch. And um, they, they very clearly sort of stated, hey, look, this is a, effectively a taking that they, they saw it as being the loss of the right. Um, it's... It's an interesting case. It's one of these that I think is, quite frankly, going to show up in administrative law case books yeah. for the next 100 years. It's going to be litigated a, again. They're yeah. going to keep challenging these procedures. Yeah. I also had forgotten to mention, we got a shout-out on Twitter from uh, the Bio Entrepreneurship Core Group at Washington University here in St. Louis. Uh, I know their coordinator, Luke, and uh, he had me give a talk to their folks a while back, and I'd mentioned the podcast. So if any of you from uh, from BioCore are, are here and listening in, uh, welcome, and uh, thank you very much for tuning in. I believe uh, uh, Kirk, you know Stuart Keating, yeah. Stewart's doing their next uh, talk on on how to have a successful business without breaking the law or being a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Which very fits much his his personality. Yes, it does. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, There's the music, and it is time for us to to move along. If you have questions, comments, or topic ideas, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and you will find us there. You can subscribe to this podcast, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Someone asked if we're we're on Spotify. I think we're not, but we're getting there. We're trying to get there, yep. So uh, we will be soon. If you like what you hear, please give us a review. We really appreciate those. It helps other people find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. Next time, we're going to finally circle back to the law of autonomy and AI and get into some detail on things like driverless cars, AI, botnets, and this actually we think plays into blockchain a little bit too. And uh, the the genesis of this discussion is the smiling monkey photo. The monkey selfie. Yeah, which, which I think the Ninth Circus just had a, a, a ruling on. So, And then we'll also next time do our, our Han Solo movie prediction. So that's all for today. We will see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 